glass of Kool-Aid. And so were the other children. This Kool-Aid was spiked with LSD. It was horrible. In the early days of the Cold War, the CIA ordered the creation of a secret program intended to find ways of mind control. They funded an army of psychiatric institutions across the United States and Canada to perform experiments on unsuspecting patients using psychedelic drugs, sensory deprivation, electroshock treatment, and more. The program was known by its codename, MKUltra. At the end of the Korean War, a number of freed American POWs came home seemingly brainwashed and espousing communist propaganda. American officials suspected that the soldiers had been subjected to what they thought were new communist mind control techniques. Alarmed by the situation, the newly formed CIA allocated $25 million for psychiatric experiments on human beings. It was the most secret program ever conducted by the CIA in the United States. Patients at psychiatric hospitals, prisoners in federal institutions, and even people in the public were given drugs without their awareness or consent and experimented upon. Initial projects within MKUltra included Operation Midnight Climax. They established what were called safe houses, where um, prostitutes would lure men to these apartments. And then once the men were in the apartments, they were dosed with LSD. And then they were basically studied by CIA scientists, usually behind a, a two-way mirror. Another common practice was the hosting and observing of LSD-induced parties with live music. These parties were called acid tests, and the culture that grew out of them played a key role in the development of the hippie and psychedelic movements a few years later. However, some of the most damaging experiments occurred at the Allen Memorial Institute in Montreal, Canada. There, under the direction of infamous Scottish-American psychiatrist Dr. Ewan Cameron, unsuspecting patients, many of whom had common ailments such as postpartum depression, were experimented on with aggressive drug cocktails and extreme techniques. My father was a victim of Dr. Cameron. He was a 27-year-old, healthy, skier, canoeer, very athletic, and he had asthma. They told him if he went to the Allen Memorial, they could cure his asthma. My father, Charles, was a patient of Dr. Cameron's. He had a trigeminal neuralgia, it's called, where there's a pain in the temple that radiates into the jaw that apparently is excruciatingly painful. They told him that it was psychosomatic, which it's not, but in those days, what did they know? So they sent him to a shrink. This shrink that he went to was working with Cameron, although we didn't know, so he, he put my father right into the program. I was having trouble with my parents. My father and my stepmother decided to put me in the Allen Memorial Institute. They had no idea what went on in there. I was 16 when I was there. Dr. Cameron pursued a concept he called depatterning, which was meant to reduce patients to an infantile psychological state wherein doctors could take advantage of the person's cognitive vulnerability to attempt to rebuild their mind under the doctor's control. A popular method of choice to achieve this was called psychic driving. The day that my father was brought to the hospital, they immediately put him on insulin uh, to put him into like an insulin coma. They took clips from the interview with the shrink and put it on tape to run a loop under his pillow while he was put into this sleep treatment. He also was put in an insulin coma for 36 days with a, with a recording beside him 
uh, saying that your mother hates you over and over and over and over and over. That was beside my bed constantly. Repeated between 250,000 and 500,000 times. Another common method was the use of extreme Page Russell electroshock therapy. Page Russell shock treatment is approximately 40 to 75 times the strength of a normal shock treatment. So it's really designed to wipe out the memory. He received um, 54 high voltage shock treatments followed by 54 grand mal seizures. After 27 days of this, they said that they were discouraged because he still had ties to his former life in that he was asking to see his wife. They decided to give him more Paige Russell shock treatments and put him to sleep for another 30 days. When patients were released from the Ellen Memorial, they and their families' lives would never be the same again. Well, there's a lot I could not remember after I got out of the Allen. When my family came, I was a zombie. I didn't even know who they were. He never came out the same. He had a blank, blank look in his eye. He didn't know who we were. He didn't know we were his daughters. He lost his job. We went into poverty after he came out. He had said in his interview with the shrink that I was the apple of his eye. And after he came home, uh, he started beating me not long after. In 1973, the MK Ultra program was terminated, and some of the evidence of his activities was systematically erased. The whole thing was basically um, discovered because of a whistleblower named John Marks, who wrote the first book, really, about um, the program called The Search for the Manchurian Candidate. There were congressional hearings here in the United States in the mid-70s after it had been exposed. And during those hearings, the CIA finally admitted that this program existed. They admitted that it was probably not the right thing to do, but they feigned innocence. Despite the congressional hearings and marginal interest in the subject in popular culture, most MKUltra survivors suffered in silence, taking their trauma with them to the grave. Today, having received no formal apology or compensation, the children of some survivors are pursuing a class action lawsuit against the institutions they deem responsible. You know, the CIA knew that it was breaking you know, every moral, ethical, and, and legal law in, in the books to do these experiments. They all were behind it. They all knew what they were doing, but they weren't doing it out of care or love. They were doing it out of military and political reasons. I am on medication now because of what happened to me when I was 16. I have not had any compensation or apology. I want everyone to know in Canada what went on in that horrible, horrible hospital. While historians and survivors have exposed MKUltra's exploits to the world, much remains unknown about its extent and wider impact. Given the highly sensitive nature of the program's activity, it is likely this will remain the case for years to come. Hello and welcome back. This is Waking Up With Mel, episode 50. We made it to 50. Woo! And we're going to talk a part two here on MK Ultra, But this time we're going to get deep into how this whole thing started and who is behind all this. If you listen to the part one, that was basically the mass deception we're all under right now. And a lot of us are waking up. I've heard so many people say, when I came out of my slumber, when I woke up, it's so cool to hear this. And now I see why things have been going on the way they have been going on, because you can't tell people 
you have you have to show them and that's why i leave links and things like that because you can you can show yourself i've i cannot tell you everything and you know there's many times where i'm like oh i was deceived in that i didn't know oops like that sucks and so nobody's free from this mass deception but we can try to wake up and try to learn from the deception we've been under a little quick recap about next next week last week uh we talked about the challenger and how it blew up in front of every kid's face in america basically because there was a school teacher on board and how i think it was a big lie a big mass deception and how that's carried out to vaccines to 9-11 to school shootings to people really not feeling safe to even walk down the street anymore to be honest because we are so uh, bombarded by just the evil in the world and we are presented this evil by the evil people that are doing it which is just crazy so this mk ultra i've spent the last week and a half just reading cia documents and the senate hearing in 1977 and my mind continues to be absolutely blown away that this was even allowed to happen and let alone be funded by us the taxpayers to torture our own mothers, fathers, children. It's absolutely insane what they have got away with. So let's talk about who started all this or or what I'm focused on. And that's the mind control, the torture of um, people who did not agree to it. And that's called illegal. I'm going to start with this character and his name is Sheffield Edwards. And he joined the U.S. Army, and that's one thread you are going to see through all of this is that the Army, uh, parts of the you know military have their hands and their their money tied in with this MK Ultra. They do it at their bases. So Mr. Sheffield Edwards, um, he became part of the Central Intelligence Agency and was appointed the head of Office of Security. Uh, his main task was to protect agency personnel and facilities from the enemy's uh, penetration. So this is a, another common thread that I've noticed, especially throughout the last three years, is that everything they do is for your good. You know, you got to lock yourself up for your good. Wear a mask for your good. Uh, don't talk to your family members or go to their homes for your good. So they like to to say that they need to do these projects or these operations for the good of the country when it's not for anybody's good, but their own sadistic pleasure because they're all satanic evil people in my opinion. So in April, 1950, Edward set up what we're going to, what's called project bluebird. And this, this was the creation uh, to check out agents and defectors, right? So they would say, "Hey, this guy's defecting. We need to we need to torture him and make sure that he's really on the U.S.'s side." So each team consisted of a psychiatrist, a lie detector dude, a polygraph guy, and an expert trained in hypnosis and a technician. But in order to fully grasp what we're about to learn with MKUltra, we need to go even further back to this operation called Operation Paperclip. Now, throughout this podcast, you're going to hear operation and projects. So within certain operations, they do certain projects. Like um, within MKUltra, they did projects like Project Midnight Climax, as you heard in the intro, or, um, you know, trying to catch people with prostitutes. They did Project... Um, 
so many different projects. We'll get into that. Before we do, though, let's talk about Operation Paperclip. That program was to recruit former Nazi scientists. Um, some of these scientists studied and tortured, studied torture and brainwashing, and several had been identified and prosecuted as war criminals during the Nuremberg trials. But instead of hanging them, they brought them to the U.S. And out of Operation Paperclip's uh, one project that I have really never heard of until I started researching this was Operation Chatter. My understanding of reading all these CIA um, documents that are now unclassified and just going through the dates and everything, it seems to me that a lot of these projects overlap each other. So uh, Project Chatter was established in 1947 and Project Bluebird was established in 1950 and Project Artichoke, so they say Bluebird was renamed Artichoke in 1951. And from everything I can tell, they renamed Artichoke in 1953. And that could be due to the death of Dr. Olson. So before we get to Dr. Olson's death, let's talk about um, Operation Chatter, because I think it's very interesting how Operation Chatter basically took it, it, Operation Chatter is like a mild form of Operation MKUltra because Chatter was just the beginning. So Operation, or aka Project Chatter, was a United States Navy program. It began in the fall of 1947, and the focus was identification and testing of drugs in interrogation and recruitment of agents. Their search included laboratory experiments on both animals and humans. The program operated under direct the direction of Charles Savage of the Naval Medical Research Institute. Um, you will see, again, a lot of Air Force bases and all that used in MKUltra and all these horrific. You will see universities, hospitals, and Air Force bases being used in these tor torture events, being funded by the CIA. It's just wonderful. Uh, the project was geared to identifying agents both with synthetic and, natu and natural that were effective during interrogation, as well as testing possible treatments for depression. Well, they're causing the depression. The project was centered on but not restricted to the use of A-N-A-B-A-S-I-N-E uh, social mean, these are all drugs, S-C-O-P-O-L-A-M-I-N-E, and mescaline. And you can look up what all those do to you. It was the first U.S. government project which Listeric Acid, which is LSD, dash 25 was used on human subjects. The Navy ended the project in 1953 when experiments merged into Project um, MKUltra. Okay, so as we see, Chatter morphed into MKUltra in 1953. But again, as Chatter's going on, here comes Project Artichoke, also aka Operation Artichoke, was a project developed and enacted by the United States CIA for the purpose of researching methods of interrogation. So if they already have Chatter going, why do they need Artichoke? Well, initially known as Project Bluebird, Project Artichoke officially rose in August 20th, 1951. And I want to say, I I started this podcast with, 
with actually reading you guys documents of Project Bluebirds, you know, uh, their proposal, they're asking for money, uh, what horrible things they were going to do to people. But it was so boring that I wanted just to get more factual instead of just read you these documents. But I will link the documents. And if you choose to, you can read them. I spent six hours reading them yesterday. They have so much information. And it's just, it it's just will make you puke in your mouth to know that, that they knowingly funded and asked for this money to to do things to people to get them to control their minds again if you think the government loves you or if anything free the government offers you, you, you please think again they the government does not love you they have they had do not have your best intentions in mind that's why when they wrote the constitution they said we the people were supposed to control the government but unfortunately through projects like this this project to me is the thread of how we got to where we're at because these kids and these unwilling victims they they chose them from the the perfect places in society not only that they had the elite and the presidents and everybody else in their back pocket blackmailing so by the time anybody wanted to do anything you're either dead or blackmailed and they got away with this for far too long and it started way back with project paperclip when they brought these Nazi psychos over to continue on the the psycho activity. And it's not an accident because the same families run everything and they they started all, all the wars. So we're just the morons that think they're sides. There's not. There's either the evil people who worship Satan and want to fulfill the satanic agenda or there's the people in the middle that don't know anything that's going on and just try to get by in life. And then there's people like me who see the power of God and that he wrote the story and he told us what was going to happen and that we're here for a reason and we need to do something about it in any possible way we can. If it's a podcast, if it's talking to your neighbor or your friend, if it's standing up for something that means something because a lot of people they just sit back they don't want to stir the pot they don't want to piss people off but if people would have stirred the pot back at project artichoke we wouldn't be in 2023 under a mass mass media mind control right now it's absolutely insane how far they've gotten so back to this so now they want to give people lsd um, to produce amnesia and other vulnerable states and subjects. So that was succeeded by Project MKUltra again, which began in 1953. So at the same parallel time, they have Project Chatter going, they have Project Artichoke going, and they all merge into this one Project MKUltra, which other has other names, MK Naomi, MK Delta. Like it's, it's a big, big project. It's not, it's not a little one. And not only that, um, parts of the intelligence division, such as the Army, Navy, and Air Force, and FBI, are all involved in this. So um, this was all picked off in the government. You know, the president wanted to act like he didn't know anything that was going on. And so they had the Senate hearing in 1977. And a lot of stuff came out about MKUltra. But unfortunately, the public was still very fast asleep. And it continued on. Um, to 2023. A lot of the things that they did in Project Artichoke, Project Bluebird, aka they're kind of the same thing in my opinion, um, is they interrogated their own U.S. military agents. So a few, one guy I saw on a show when I was watching all the documentaries I watch, he was in the Korean War between North and South Korea 
this that's called the forgotten war a lot of people forget about it there was world war world war Two, korean war and then the vietnam war but the korean war is like forgotten and they pulled all of the stuff off in between those two wars in between world war Two and the vietnam war so much crazy stuff happened orphan trains you know Hugh Hefner going to Vietnam and flying out all these Vietnam babies on his Playboy bunny jet like so many horrible things and so many uh, innocent victims and so many trafficked children all out of this project that started from Operation Paperclip it's it's absolutely insane one of the reasons I believe they renamed um, Project Bluebird, aka Artichoke, into MK Ultra is because what happened to Dr. Olson. So now I'm going to play you a little clip about his story. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Wormwood, it's all about his life. It's, it's based on a true story. Hollywood is, from my understanding, more and more of what I'm hearing from testimonies, uh, groomed out of this MK Ultra. Um, fear-based mind control and they are put into positions from very young children they don't know anything different but the satanic ritual abuse they've been put through and the mind control and the torture and that is why they have the high up positions they have and eventually they're blackmailed by the time they're 25 30 they want to come out and tell the public the truth uh you got either that choice to be honest or to die and they've seen it they've seen kids die and be sacrificed since they're kids and this doesn't just go from hollywood movie stars this goes to the music industry as we've talked about in the doors and all that with laurel canyon and past episodes with mind control um it goes through you know the hollywood people it goes even through anderson cooper go listen to gloria vanderbilt episode these people are all tied together and there's one common thread, and it's this right here. With that, here's Dr. Olson's testimony of his um, tragic end. Before I play you the propaganda media clip about Dr. Olson, I want to read you the Senate Intelligence um, Senate report from 1977. And I will again put the link to all these pages. It's a very long read. Uh, took me several hours yesterday. But this is going to be on page 74. And it also has 394 underneath um, of what I'm reading here. But it says, Although the CIA recognized these effects of LSD to unwitting individuals within the United States, the project continued. As Deputy, Deputy Director for Plans, Richard Helms wrote, the Deputy Director of Central Intelligence during discussions which led to the secession of unwitting testing. While I share your uneasiness of this distaste for any program which tends to intrude upon an individual's private and legal prioritives, I believe it's necessary that the agency maintain a central role in this activity, keep current on enemy capabilities, the manipulation of human behavior, and maintain an offensive capability. There were no attempts to secure an approval for the most controversial aspects of these programs from the exclusive, sorry guys, from the executive branch or Congress. The nature and existence of the programs were closely held secrets. Even the DCI McCone was not briefed on all the details of the program involving the Sir Petitions administration of LSD until 1963. That's 10 years after. <laughs> 
<laughs> after they supposedly said that it was over. It was deemed imperative that these programs be concealed from American people, as the CIA Inspector General wrote in 1957. Precautions must be taken not only to protect operations from exposure to enemy forces, but also to conceal these activities from the American public in general. The knowledge of the agency is engaging in un unethical and illicit activities would have serious repercussions in the political and diplomatic circles and would be detrimental to accomplish of its mission. Number two, the death of Dr. Frank Olson. So I want to read this and then I'm going to play the clip. I feel kind of, it's from his son. So a lot of it I feel is really sincere, but others it's like they don't tell the whole story. They know who was with Frank Olson. They know who pushed him out the window. Why was he never arrested? So the death of Dr. Frank Olson, the most tragic result of testing of LSD by the CIA was the death of Dr. Frank Olson, a civilian employee of the army who died on November 27, 1953. His death followed his participation in a CIA experiment with LSD. Now, let's go back. He did not participate. They told him after they gave it to him that he was a participant. <laughs> so let's see if they say that here. As a part of this experiment, Olson was, oh, here it is, unwittingly received approximately seven Oh, not seven, 70 micrograms of LSD in a glass of a contora. He drank on November 19th, 1953. Remember the dates. The drug had been placed in the bottle by a CA officer, Dr. Robert Lashbrook. As part of an, an experiment, he and Dr. Sidney, this guy's a real peach right here. Dr. Sidney, G-O-T-T-L-I-E-B, Gottleb performed a meeting of Army and CIA scientists. Shortly after this experiment, Olson exhibited symptoms of paranoia, schizophrenia, accompanied by Dr. Lashbrook. Olson sought psychiatric assistance in New York City from a physician, Dr. Harold Amberson, A-B-R-A-M-S-O-N, who research on LSD had been funded indirectly by the CIA. While in New York for treatment, Olson fell to his death from the 10th story window from the Slater Hotel. Okay, so we got that. All in all, it sounds to me like this guy, you know, might have got into the CIA not realizing how deep he was going to get. And when he wanted out, it was too bad, so sad. So they decided to dose him with LSD. Uh, when that mind control didn't go quite the way they wanted, they pushed him out the window. And I'll let you be the judge of that. But I'm going to play you again that clip from the documentary. And you can watch the whole documentary. I highly recommend you do. So it says professionally, and this is again the Intelligence Senate Committee document. Professionally, Olson was well respected by his colleagues in both the Army and the CIA. Uh, Vincent Ruit, Olson's immediate superior at the time of his death, was in almost daily contact with Olson. According to Ruit, as a professional man, his ability and out his ability was outstanding. Ruit stated that during the period prior to the experiment, I noticed nothing which would lead me to believe that he was of unsound mind. Doctor Lashbrook, who had, and I think that's the last guy with him. 
Uh, we'll find out here in a second. Who had a monthly contacts with Olson from early 1952 until the time of his death stated publicly that before Olson received LSD, as far as I know, he was perfectly normal. This assessment is in direct contradiction to certain statements evaluating Olson's emotional state stability made in a CIA internal mem memoranda written after Olson's death. B. The Experiment On November 18, 1953, a group of 10 scientists from the CIA and Camp Diedrich attended a semi-annual semi review and analysis conference at a cabin located at Deep Creek Lake, Maryland. Three of the participa participants were the CIA Technical Service staff. The Diedrich representatives were all from the Special Operations Division. According to one CIA official, the Special Operations Division participants agreed that an unwitting experiment would be desirable. The account directly contradicts Vincent Ruitt's recollection. Ruitt recalls no such discussion and has asserted that he would remember any such discussion because the SOD participants would have strenuously objected to testing on unwitting subjects. <clears throat> BS, dude. In May 1953, Richard Helms, assistant D DTP, held a staff meeting with chief tech of technical service staff. I swear these names are ridiculous. Attended. At this meeting, Helms indicated that the drug LSD was dynamite and that he should be advised at all times when it was intended to, to use it. In addition to the then DTP, Frank Wisner sent a memorandum to the TSS stating that the requirement that the DTP personally approve the use of LSD. Globati went ahead with the experiment, securing the approval of his immediate supervisor. Neither the chief of TSS nor the DTP authorized the experiment in which Olson participated. Unwittingly, it should say. According to Gol Betty, I don't even know how to say his name, a very small dose of LSD was placed in a bottle of Contora, which was served after dinner on Thursday, November 19th. The drug was placed in the liquor by Robert Lashbrook. All but two of the SOD participants received LSD. One did not drink. The other had a heart condition. About 20 minutes after they finished their Contora, Golbetti informed the participants. <laughs> I think it's funny they call them participants because if you're un an uninformed participant, you're not a participant at all. Uh, but anyways, they inf he informed him that they have received LSD. Dr. Gobadi stated that up to the time of the experiment, he observed nothing unusual in Olson's behavior. Once the experiment was underway, Golbetti recalled that the drug had a definite effect on the group to the point that they were boisterous and laughing and they could not continue the meeting or engage in sensible conversation. The meeting continued until about 1 a.m. when the participant participants retired for the evening. Golbetti recalled that Olson, among others, complained of wakefulness during the night. According to Golbetti, on Friday morning, aside from some evidence of fatigue, I observed nothing unusual in Olson's actions, conversations, or general behavior. 
Ruit recalls that Olson appeared to be agitated at breakfast, but he did not consider that to be abnormal under the circumstances. C. The treatment. The following Monday, November 23rd, Olson was waiting for Ruit when he came to work at 7.30 a.m. For the next two days, Olson's friends and family attempted to reassure him and help him snap out of it, of what appeared to be a serious depression. On Tuesday, Olson again came to Ruit after an hour-long conversation. It, would, it was decided that medical assistance for Dr. Olson was desirable. Ruit then called Lashbrook and informed him that Dr. Olson was in serious trouble and needed immediate professional attention. Lashbrook agreed to make appropriate arrangements and told Ruit to bring Olson to Washington, D.C., Ruit and Olson proceeded to Washington to meet with Lashbrook. Now, Lashbrook's the one that gave him the acid. And, right? Am I right here? I'm pretty sure I'm right. Um, but don't quote me on that because all these names, I'm getting confused. But anyways, Lashbrook agreed to make appropriate arrangements and told Ruit to bring Olson to Washington, D.C. They went to Washington, D.C. to meet Lashbrook. There they left for New York about 2.30 p.m. to meet Dr. Harold a-B-R-A-M-S-O-N. At that time, Dr. Amberson was the allergist and immunologist practicing medicine in New York. So that has so much to do with LSD overdosing. He held no degree in psychiatric... <laughs> yeah, okay, so he's not a, psych a psychologist, but he was associated with research pro projects supported indirectly by the CIA. This is ridiculous. So since he needed help, they took him to this dude. And um, yeah, the rest is history. As we know, he fell out a window. So that guy didn't know nothing. So anyways, well, let's go back to the report. It says that Ruit Lashbrook and Olson remained in New York for two days of consultations with this guy who knows nothing about LSD. And on Thursday, November 26, 1953, the three flew back to Washington so that Olson could spend Thanksgiving with his family. Now, this part I find really strange. So now they're saying in route from the airport, Olson told Ruit that he was afraid to face his family. After a lengthy discussion, it was decided that Olson and Lashbrook would return to New York and that Ruit would go to Frederick to explain these events to Miss Olson. So I would like to know what they told her that day. Lashbrook and Olson flew back to New York the same day and for consultations with Amberson. They spent Thursday night in Long Island Hotel and the next morning returned to the city with Amberson. In further discussion with Amberson, it was agreed that Olson should be placed under regular psychiatric care at an institution closer to his home. D. The death. Because they could not obtain air transportation for a return trip Friday night, Lashbrook and Olson made reservations for Saturday morning and checked into the Slater Hotel. Between the time they checked in 10 p.m., they watched television, visited the cocktail lounge where each had two martinis and dinner. Probably got slipped some more LSD. Just my opinion. This is just my opinion. According to Lashbrook, Olson was cheerful and appeared to enjoy the entertainment. He appeared no longer particularly depressed and almost the Dr. Olson I knew prior to the experiment, unquote. After dinner, Lashbrook and Olson watched television for about an hour, and at 11, Olson suggested they go to bed, saying that he felt more relaxed than he had since they got to New York. Mm -hmm. Ain't that fun? Olson then left a call with the hotel operator to wake them in the morning. 
At approximately 2.30 a.m. Saturday, November 28th, Lashbrook was awakened by a loud crash of glass. That's in quotes. In his report on the incident, he stated only that Olson had crashed through the closed window blind and the closed window, and he fell to his death from the window of our room on the 10th floor. Immediately after finding that Olson had leapt to his death, Lashbrook telephoned Golbetti at his home and informed him of the incident. Golbetti called Ruit and informed him of Olson's death at approximately 2.45 a.m. Lashbrook then called the hotel, de- hotel desk and reported the incident to the operator there. Lashbrook called Amberson and informed him of the occurrence. Amberson told Lashbrook he wanted to be kept out of the thing completely, but later changed his mind and agreed to assist Lashbrook. Shortly thereafter, uninformed police officers and some hotel employees came to Lashbrook's room. Lashbrook told the police that he didn't know why Olson had committed suicide, but he did know that Olson suffered from ulcers. The Aftermath Following Dr. Olson's death, the CIA made substantial effort to ensure his family received death benefits, but did not notify the Olsons of the circumstances surrounding his demise. The agency also made considerable efforts to prevent the death being connected with the CIA and supplied a complete cover for Lashbrook so that his association with the CIA would remain a secret. After Dr. Olson's death, the CIA conducted an internal investigation of the incident. As part of his responsibilities in the investigation, the general counsel wrote the inspector general stating, I am not happy with what seems to be a very casual attitude on the part of the TSS representatives to a way that this experiment was conducted and the remarks that this is just one of the risks running with scientific experimentation. I do not eliminate the need for taking risks, but I do believe, especially when human health or life is at stake, that at least the prudent, responsible measures which can be taken to minimize the risk must be taken and failure to do so was culpable negligence. The actions of the various individuals concerned after the effects to the experiment on Dr. Olson became a main manifest also revealed the failure to observe normal and reasonable precautions. As a result of the investigation, DCI Alan Doles sent a personal letter to Chief of Technical Operations of Technical Service Staff who had approved the experiment, criticizing him for, quote-unquote, poor judgment and authorizing the use of the drugs on such an unwitting basis and without proximate medical safeguards. Duels also sent a letter to Dr. Gobetti, chief of the chemical division of the technical service staff, criticizing him for recommending the unwitting application of the drug. And that proposal did not give sufficient emphasis for medical collaboration and for proper consideration of the rights of the individual to whom it was being administered. The letters were hand-carried to the individuals to be read and returned. Although the letters were critical, a note from the deputy director of the CIA to Mr. Helms instructed him to inform the individuals that these are not reprimands and no personal file notations are being made. 
Thus, although the Rockefeller Commission mm -hmm, had characterized them as such, these notes were explicitly not reprimands, nor did the participation in the event which led to Dr. Olson's death have any apparent effect on the advancement with the CIA of the individuals involved. And this goes on. So I think this will be a good segue to get to uh, part three next week where we get more into the children that get involved in this, the movie stars, how they get involved. I just found this really cool witness testimony that I wanted to share with you guys next week. But right now I want to share with you the story in the eyes of the son of Dr. Olson. As the scientist responsible for biological warfare experiments, Frank Olson was among the most important holders of confidential information during the Cold War. November 1953, four years after he was suspected of disclosing secrets, an accusation that was never proved. During a trip to New York, Olson is accompanied by a CIA agent who watches him constantly, never leaving his side. Olson and the CIA agent take a room in the famous Hotel Pennsylvania. So, what are they doing in New York? Armand Pastore is the manager of the hotel. He is on duty that night when Frank Olson falls from the 13th floor, landing on the sidewalk in front of the hotel. He was laying there looking at me, trying to speak. Okay, I want to make two things, corrections right there real quick. One, he was at Hotel Slater. I don't know if that's later Hotel Pennsylvania, but that's weird. And he was on the 10th floor, not the 13th. So interesting that those mistakes were made here. But let's continue on. A very earnest look in his eyes, you know, wide open. And, but there was blood everywhere. There was blood from his nose, blood from his eyes, blood from his ears. There was a bone protruding from the his left arm sticking straight out, and then uh, we kept trying to speak to him, uh, but we, we were not really communicating, because I couldn't understand anything he was saying. And then finally he died. Pastore notifies the police and accompanies them to the 13th floor. In the meantime, he has determined that Olson must have fallen to his death from 1018A, and that there was probably another person in the room at the time. Wait a minute, I says. If possible, somebody is in there. And then they became alert and they pulled their guns out. So if you open the door, we'll go in. So I, op I opened the door with my key and they rushed in. And here this guy was sitting on the, in the commode uh, with his hands on his knees, his head up, hands up to his head. And they said, what happened? Cops said, what happened? Said, I don't know. I just heard a crash of glass. And then I see Frank Olson is out in the street. I looked out the window and he's down in the street. The CIA shadow testifies that he was fast asleep and didn't hear Olson get out of bed. He can offer no explanation for the suicide. He has nothing else to say. He makes no statement regarding the reason the two were visiting New York. The case is closed quickly. No one is interested in the telephone call that someone made from Olson's room immediately following his death. So the operator says, yeah, there was one call out of that room. And I said, yeah. 
I said, what, what was the conversation? He said, well, the man in the room called this number out in Long Island, and he said, well, he's gone. And the man on the other end said, well, that's too bad. And they both hung up. Was that the CIA agent reporting that he had solved the Frank Olson problem in the Hotel Pennsylvania? Eric Olson in New York. For years now, he's been searching for witnesses who might know something about his father's death, which he considers to be a murder perpetrated by the CIA. He wants to know the motive. Was the government afraid Frank Olson might reveal state secrets? The recent terror attacks involving anthrax were a shock to Eric. Eric finds himself wondering about a lot of things. Was the anthrax terrorist one of our own? Is that the reason he hasn't been caught? Because he knows something no one else should find out about. A secret his father knew too? In a suburb of New York, Eric Olson meets longtime CIA veteran Ike Feldman. In the 50s, he worked in drug enforcement. At least, that was the official version. Although Feldman never met Eric's father personally, he discovered some information about the circumstances of his death. The source that I had was in the New York City Police Department, it was a Bureau of Narcotics agents, and it was the CIA agent agents themselves. They all seemed the same, that uh, he was pushed out the window, that he didn't jump. People who wanted him out of the way said that he talked too much, and he was telling people about the things that he'd done, which was American secret. If you work on a top government secret, city secret, state secret, and it spills out to people that you shouldn't know, there's only one way to do it, kill him. In April of 1950, Dr. Frank Olson received a diplomatic passport, unusual for an army scientist. Did he have a new job? In the following years, he traveled often to Europe, including making several trips to Germany. Well, he was a member of the CIA. Uh, I only found this out after he told me about it, because I didn't know it, because to me he was a captain, and that's all I knew about it at first. But it turns out that he was a, a CIA agent, and he stayed on, and he, right on through to 1953. Pictures taken in Frankfurt and Heidelberg will later turn up among Olson's slides. These cities were home to the U.S. Army's most important facilities in Germany. There is also a picture of the top-secret CIA headquarters in Germany, located in the building of IG Farben, in the heart of Frankfurt. What is Olson's new assignment? He is now working in an area that has nothing to do with biological weapons. Here, in the German offices of the CIA, the biochemist is conducting important conversations with U.S. intelligence officers. Increasingly, 
he can be found in the company of other CIA agents, including a certain John McNulty. It has to do with a top-secret project to use chemicals, drugs, and torture on human beings in order to break their will and make them submissive. Brainwashing. The code name for this operation? Artichoke. The team would enjoy the opportunity of applying artichoke techniques to individuals of dubious loyalty, suspected agents or plants, and subjects having known reasons for deception. So in the Taunus Hills north of Frankfurt, hidden in old half-timbered houses, the U.S. Army led a quiet little interrogation center, Camp King. It was primarily Soviet agents and defectors from East Germany who were kept here people the CIA considered to be communist spies. Special teams, the so-called rough boys, interrogated the prisoners. The American officers who lived the good life at Camp King aren't disturbed about Bulma's past. Was the former concentration camp doctor expected to lend his experience for their own planned experiments on human beings? A CIA consultant began planning the artichoke experiments as early as September of 1951. Patients at Oberursel pointed up signs and symptoms of drugs that might be used. We should look into the use of amnesia-producing drugs. Of course, their methods were not humane. They exerted a lot of pressure. There are ways of breaking people. At Camp King, they were notorious, the rough boys. Anything somebody didn't want to reveal, they would try to get it out of them. There are many indications that the cruel experiments involving human beings, Operation Artichoke, took place in this isolated CIA safe house near Camp King, at the edge of a town called Kohnberg. Schuster Villa, now called Haus Waldhof, was built shortly after the turn of the century as the summer residence of a Jewish banking family from Frankfurt. The Nazis confiscated it in 1934 and the Americans took it over after the war. The neighbors, the community, didn't know who it was, what this place was, because the military personnel going in and out of the house weren't in uniform. They wore civilian clothing. The vehicles had no license tags, so the community wasn't even aware it was an American facility. At House Waldorf, in June 1952, the CIA begins conducting brainwashing experiments using various drugs, hypnosis, and probably torture. One of the top secret protocols documents a Russian agent being pumped full of medication. The goal of the experiments is to manipulate the human mind in order to extract secrets from its subjects, and then to erase their memory so they can't remember what happened to them. Frank Olson arrived in Frankfurt on June 12, 1952, from Hendon Military Airport near London. He left the Rhine Mine region three days later, on June 15th. On June 13th, experiments are conducted with patient number two, a suspected Soviet double agent. Uh, he was troubled after he came back from Germany one time. He came back and he told me, he said, Norm, I'll tell you right now, you and I never
never talked about this, but hey, you know, we're, we're both grown-ups, and this was rough. He said, Norm, you would be stunned by the techniques that they used. They made people talk. They brainwashed people. They used uh, all kinds of drugs. They all kinds of uh, torture. The CIA's unscrupulous experiments on human beings continued the Nazi drug experiments they learned of during the liberation of the Dachau concentration camp. They were using Nazis. They were using prisoners. They were using Russians. And they didn't care whether or not they came out of it or not. One of the things we had to do was to assemble an... Meanwhile, the U.S. Army was conducting extensive experiments with a new miracle drug, LSD. Here, for example, a soldier was expected to assemble a rifle while under the influence of the hallucinogen. These LSD experiments took place on the campus of the Chemical Corps in Edgewood Arsenal. The scientists who worked in these laboratories in the early 50s, and who collaborated closely with Frank Olson, were looking for new hallucinogenic substances. They hoped to find a way to use the drugs on the battleground. From former Nazi Germany, Dr. Fritz Hoffmann had been hired a few years earlier to spur the search for new behavior-modifying substances. Immediately after the war, he courted the Americans, seeking to ensure a job in the United States. Just in, in the U.S. during that time, in uh, looking at uh, mood-altering drugs, uh, from LSD to Canucleon methyl dimensilate and other um, possible mood-altering drugs. Um, Fritz was in, was interested in that area as well. Several weeks later, on a windy after its experiments on soldiers, the army saw potential in using LSD and other drugs to sedate and dope enemy troops. In short order, it would be possible to conquer territory without a fight. CIA begins conducting its own LSD experiments in the Bohemian New York neighborhood of Greenwich Village on Bedford Street. But unlike the Army experiments, the subjects of these tests, which took place in an apartment disguised as a brothel, would not be informed. The CIA hired prostitutes to pour LSD into their customers' drinks and then lure them into revealing secrets. My purpose was to see that we got guys up there who we wanted to talk and through other people, we got prostitutes to come in and speak to these guys. And these prostitutes would put something, that, which I found out later on was LSD, into the drink and make them talk. Either they wanted to talk about narcotics, security, or crime. This was all part of the CIA experiment. They called it dirty tricks. LSD, it was soon learned, was a much more effective way to loosen the tongue than alcohol was. Western Maryland, a three-hour drive from Washington. In an isolated vacation house at the edge of the lake, the CIA's Dirty Tricks Department converged here for a meeting with 10 of its scientists in November 1953. The meeting is about artichoke. According to the invitation, it was a conference for sports journalists, but in reality, the participants, one of them Frank Olson, were to be placed under the influence of LSD. One of the drinks has been spiked, 
later, it will be said the CIA was conducting a kind of self-test, but without the knowledge of the participants. I don't think, again, from what I heard, that he was drugged because he was a security agent. He was drugged because he talked too much. When Frank Olson was later briefed about the LSD experiment, he knew immediately what it meant. They had interrogated him with artichoke techniques. Friday evening, he came home and spent the weekend you know, in this house with, with, with my mother and brother and sister and me. And during much of that weekend, they sat on a sofa, which was just over here. And it was a, it was a foggy November weekend, as she described it. And they sort of sat there. Uh, holding hands and uh, kind of staring out these big windows into the fog and uh, he described uh, having made something he referred to as a terrible mistake. The CIA brings Olson accompanied by an agent to New York. In the hotel they are joined by a doctor working for the Secret Service who administers medication. Frank Olson has become a security risk but it seems the CIA has already found a solution. Forty years later, at the Institute for Forensic Medicine at George Washington University, the body of Dr. Frank Olson has been exhumed and is undergoing an autopsy. Eric wants clarity once and for all. And as it turns out, the results of the first autopsy in 1953 in New York were manipulated. Frank Olson was first knocked out by a targeted blow and then thrown out of the open hotel window. Just a few months before the murder took place, the CIA had this study of assassination prepared, a how-to book for agents on how to kill people without leaving any clues. In this report, it says, The most efficient accident in simple assassination is a fall of 75 feet or more onto a hard surface. In some cases, it will be necessary to stun or drug the subject before dropping him. What was spelled out in that assassination manual was almost letter for letter what happened to Dr. Olson. And, and it was a, a protocol, as we call it, for an assassination, which fit like the fingers in a glove. So was it in fact murder? But for what reason? Why did Olson speak of a terrible mistake he had made? There's a piece missing, and I'm not sure that I'm the one to, to give it to you. But what happened was that he, he just uh, got involved in it uh, in a way that he was unhappy about it, but there's nothing he could do about it. He was CIA, and they, they uh, took it to the end. At the time, a bitter war was going on between allied U.S. troops against the North Koreans and Chinese. It had already been going on for three years. It was the first long-awaited and long-feared battle between the West and communism. Could the Korean War have anything to do with Frank's personal problems? He still has an office here in Fort Detrick, in the U.S. Army Center for Biological Weapons. At the same time, he is working for the CIA. 
among the tasks of the Dirty Tricks Department in Building 1412 are brainwashing, drugs, and torture, as well as murder by means of poisons and bacteria. On July 17, 1953, Olson celebrates his 43rd birthday with friends. A few days later, he leaves for the last trip he will ever take. He took his movie camera. First stop, London. First objects filmed, Big Ben and a parade on the mall. Then on to Paris. Near the Eiffel Tower, his two CIA colleagues sit in a sidewalk cafe and watch pretty French girls go by. On the left is John McNulty. Paris, London, Stockholm. Frank will later write on the packaging. His son Eric is seeing his father's last film for the first time in his memory. Then, suddenly, a picture of the ruins of the Reichstag and Brandenburg Gate. The Soviet memorial for the victims of the Second World War. So Frank Olson was also in Berlin early in August 1953. In Zehlendorf, he photographs the headquarters of the American army. Is Frank Olson on a secret artichoke mission? Several top-level communist agents were being interrogated in Berlin at the time. It was a time of intense political and military tension in the divided city, just weeks after the civilian uprising in the Soviet sector. At the army headquarters in Berlin, Olson apparently witnessed brutal interrogation methods. When he came back from Germany the last time, he sounded different. When he talked to me, he said, I, I can probably tell you things that I can't tell other people because you're still in, in top secret material, but the people that he saw in Germany went to the extreme. And he said, Norm, did you ever see a man die? And I said, no. And he said, well, I did. They did die. Some of the people that were interrogated died. So you can imagine the amount of um, uh, work that they were doing on these people. He said that he was going to leave. He told me that. He said, I'm getting out of that CIA, period. It's just a matter of days before the first American prisoners of war will be released. Some of them will face charges of high treason because they accuse their own country of conducting biological warfare. When my son asked me what I did in Korea, how can I tell him that I came over here and dropped germ bombs on people, destroying them, bringing death and destruction? How can I go back and face my family? Are their accusations accurate? Or are they themselves the victims of communist brainwashing? One thing is for certain, back home in freedom, the soldiers making these confessions will be interrogated again. Using drugs and torture by their own people. Korean War Memorial in Washington honors the Americans who died in that fight. Of those who returned, some were interrogated by the CIA using cruel methods and forced to rescind their confessions.
But were the confessions the truth? Did the Americans in fact use biological weapons in the Korean War? As a test? And was this the secret Frank Olson knew and might disclose? This fits with what my mother had always said, Korea really bothered your father. Finally, when, when one of my father's colleagues, you know, within the past year only, told me that, you know, my father had come to understand that Korea was the, was the key thing and, that, and that, that they were using biological warfare methods in Korea. So, and then I proceeded to ask him, well, what about the germ warfare confessions? That this was, you know, this was alleged to be by the American government. These confessions made by the American servicemen were, were immediately discredited with, under the idea that these were manipulated and produced only by the effect of brainwashing. And at that point, my father's colleague looked at me and he said, as if to say, read my lips, he said, it wasn't all brainwashing. Would this colleague, Norman Kuhnoyer, repeat this statement in front of the camera? He has never made a public statement, neither about Frank Olson, nor about biological warfare in the Korean War. Will he, now in his 80s, pay last respects to his old friend Frank Olson, and to Frank's son Eric, who takes part in this conversation? I took an oath when I left the United States Army that I would never divulge that type of stuff. Right. You can't prove it, can you? Biological weapons, and they used them. I won't say any more than that. They used them. Is there a reason for your dad being killed by the CIA? I would so. Around Frederick, Maryland, where Frank Olson lived while working for both the U.S. Army's secret biological warfare program and the CIA, the FBI is still looking for the anthrax terrorist. For months, the largest investigation in the history of American criminal justice has been underway. Should the perpetrator be accused and the case come to court, the government in Washington might be forced to reveal what Eric Olson believes is top secret information about illegal research on biological weapons, about the use of anthrax in the Korean War, and about his father's murder. In the summer of 1975, the American government didn't hesitate to see to it that the truth was not made known. The conspiracy originated at the top, in the White House, initiated by Donald Rumsfeld and Richard Cheney. It had just been learned that the CIA allegedly drugged its employee Frank Olson with LSD before his supposed suicide. Rumsfeld and Cheney, heads of the White House Chiefs of Staff, at the time recommended to President Gerald Ford that he apologize to the family in the name of the government and to support retribution in order to prevent worse things from happening. That's the content of this White House memo. There is the possibility that it might be necessary to disclose highly classified national security information in connection with any court suit or legislative hearings. Ten days later, Ford hosted the Olson family and apologized. This allowed him to remain silent about state secrets and the true reasons for Frank Olson's death. 
what this means for me is that you know, national security homicide is not only a possibility, but really it's a necessity when you have a certain number of ingredients together. If you're doing top secret work that is immoral, arguably immoral, especially in the post-Nuremberg period, and arguably illegal, uh, and at odds with the kind of high moral position that you're trying to maintain in the world, uh, you have to have a mechanism of security which is going to include murder. Two politicians who collaborated in the conspiracy in 1975, Rumsfeld and Cheney, are back in power. As Vice President and Secretary of Defense of the Government of the United States. The Frank Olson case, it seems, is far from closed, even 50 years later. That, at least, is one thing of which Olson's son is now certain. So, at the death of Dr. Olson, we no longer hear the name Artichoke or Bluebird. We now hear MK Ultra moving forward. And next week, on part three of this, we're going to listen to some testimonies of people in all different ranks of life and families that were put through the program and how they were put through the program. So stay tuned for next week. It's going to be uh, definitely one for not little ears. There's going to be some hard, hard stuff to listen to, but it's people's truth and the truth will set us free. With that, thank you, Lord, for everything that you do in our lives. Thank you for your continual um, awakening and blessing through it. Lord, I just pray that every single survivor that's still out there feels like they now have a, a place to go, a place to speak. If if any of them want to come here and, and feel safe, just let them come here and tell their testimony to the world. I just thank you, Lord, for all the people listening out there, um, that maybe some of them can put together some dots that they have in their own lives because we are all connected some way, somehow, through this program that they put, have been putting us through. Uh, I ask for the chains of MK Ultra and every um, person behind it to be broken in this very moment and that they no longer have room to grow because the light has been shed on them and the darkness will now flee. And I pray that and I lift that up in Jesus' holy and precious name. May you all have a great, great rest of your week or weekend whenever you're listening to this and God bless you. In the name of Yahweh, Jesus, amen.